Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, The Messiah in the Psalms. This week was the beginning of this three-week mini-series where we will be studying Psalm 2 and Psalm 22, preparing our hearts and minds for the Easter season. In Psalm 2, we see the glory and greatness of the promised Messiah. In week one, we saw in Psalm 2, both the voice of the nation speaking out in foolish rebellion and the voice of the Father responding with divine derision. We pray that you are challenged and encouraged by what you hear. We're beginning a um, new sort of mini-series, if you will, through a few of the Psalms. And that is indeed a fitting song uh, for what we will be looking at not only this morning, but the next two weeks. We have, of course, spent a good deal of time in the Gospel of John. And, and I like, especially as we work through larger books of the Bible that, can take, that take a considerable amount of time for us to work through, uh, to sort of be able to break those up and with, with some short uh, series during the sort of natural breaks in the given text. And so uh, we have really come to the end of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. We, for the last two weeks, uh, sort of studied that departing prayer. And now we're really ready to enter into uh, what we might consider uh, the Easter scene, if you will. And so before we return to John's Gospel to finish it up, that will lead us uh, up to and through Easter, we're going to spend some time visiting a few of the Psalms and looking at the Messiah in the Psalms. Now, a lot of what we have been considering in John's Gospel and way of Jesus developing His disciples is in some ways really heavy stuff, heavy in the sense that uh, we begin to really understand our responsibility and the burden of discipleship. Uh, but we also need to be reminded that Jesus promises us that uh, His burden will be what? It will be easy and His yoke will be light. And so one of the ways that we reconcile the huge responsibility of discipleship with the truth uh, that, that really the, the, the burden and the yoke is, is light um, is by understanding Jesus as the Messiah King. And so over the next three weeks, we really want to spend this time preparing our hearts and our minds for our Easter celebration, giving ourselves an appropriate focus on who Jesus is as Messiah and using the Psalms to help us do that. Now, this morning, we will be beginning in Psalm 2, the second Psalms. And you'll notice this morning that this Psalm raises the question, who is in charge of the world? Who, who is in control? Who is, who is the one uh, who all other things are answering to? Now, when we look around the world today, it's really easy for us to ask the question, what in the world is going on, isn't it? Uh, you may ask yourself that question daily or weekly or at least, at least uh, very, very, uh, on a very regular basis. But now, a more philosophical <clears throat> question might be, is the world's history actually going anywhere? Right? That's really a question that a lot of people ask, especially 
non-Christians ask. Now hopefully if you're a Christian you already understand this, but uh, really a philosophical question about the world and about the history, uh, because it's not just Christians that look around and say what in the world is going on. Others look around and say the same sort of thing and wonder, is history actually going anywhere? Now this psalm, Psalm 2, really answers these questions. And it's showing us that everything centers on the Lord's King, specifically on King Jesus. And so it is, the answer to the question, is history going anywhere, is really answered in this psalm. History is moving towards Jesus' exaltation. It's, history is moving towards the salvation of the King's people. And history is moving towards the King's judgment of those who have and do reject His reign. In the musical Hamilton, if you've seen it, they said of Hamilton, history has its eyes on you. And that really is what this psalm is showing us about Jesus, that all of history is focused on this man, on this King, Jesus. All of redemptive history has its eyes on the one that we read about in this psalm. Now, this psalm begins to show us that, that really true freedom... Uh, true security and true joy are only found when we submit ourselves to the Christ who reigns over all. You see, this psalm reminds us of something we all need to know today, and that is that we can rest in the sovereignty of this King. We rest in King Jesus' sovereignty today. This is why I said it's a really good follow-up to where we've been in the Gospel of John because we need to remind ourselves when we think about the responsibility of discipleship, uh, we need to remind ourselves of that daily, but we also ought to remind ourselves of the rest that we have in King Jesus. Now just a brief introduction to this psalm itself I think is very important for a number of reasons. This psalm is often quoted in the New Testament in reference, of course, to Christ and His everlasting kingdom. In fact, it is one of the two most quoted Old Testament passages. The two most quoted are, in fact, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Verses 1 and 2 of this psalm are cited in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. That's when the early church is, is really encountering this, this great deal, almost unimaginable level of persecution. And they actually look to these two verses for comfort. Verse 7 is alluded to several times and it's directly quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 to speak of Jesus' sovereignty over the angels. It's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. It's used to speak of Jesus' ascent to His priestly role. Then it's quoted directly again in Acts chapter 13 verse 33 and it's used as a reference to Jesus' resurrection and His kingship. Then verse 9 of this psalm is spoken of directly three times just in the book of Revelation. Once as a reference to believers' victory and twice as Jesus' overcoming of all of His enemies in the future. Now we'll look at several of these instances as we move through this text this morning. But what does all of this say to us? What does all of this mean to us? And I believe it tells us that this psalm talks about both advents of Christ. And so when we talk about the advent of Christ, we're talking about the coming of Christ. And so this psalm is actually a very fitting psalm to celebrate Christmas, the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. But it's also a really good uh, psalm to use uh, for Easter as, we, as Easter points us towards the second advent of Christ or the second coming of Christ. So it speaks about Christ's first coming as ultimate king, right? As that 
perfect Davidic son that is being prophesied about in all of the Old Testament Scriptures, but it also talks about the second coming in which he will ultimately put all of his enemies under his feet. So this is a very important psalm as it really helps us understand the whole narrative of Scripture. And so it's why I want us to spend a good deal of time this morning really understanding this psalm because it gives us this really clear picture of how Genesis to Revelation is all telling us one story. It really brings together the full picture of the gospel for us. But there's another reason that Psalm 2, I believe, is significant. And that's because it serves really as an introduction to the, uh, to the psalms themselves, to the Psalter itself. In fact, uh, chapters 1 and 2, Psalm 1 and 2, are really connected. And we can see that in a number of ways. One of the ways is actually the bookends of these two psalms. Notice in verse 1 of chapter of Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, or standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And then notice the very last verse of Psalm 2, verse 12, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You see those bookends of blessed, right? He's talking about the blessed in Psalm 1, verse 1, and he's talking about the blessed in Psalm 2, verse 12. And so these are really, uh, really could be considered one unit. In fact, some of the older Greek manuscripts actually refer to Psalm 1 and 2 as the exact same psalm because they're, uh, they're really seen as this introduction to the Psalter. And what that tells us is that the psalmist, as he's writing Psalm 1 and 2, wants us to see that everything that is about to come forward is that which we should meditate on. It's that which we could, should consider deeply, specifically, right? Meditating and considering deeply Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate hero of Scripture. So let's dive into Psalm 2 for just a moment. I invite you to join with me in reading Psalm 2, beginning in verse one. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this word. We believe that it is indeed the very bread that we need to sustain our souls. And so, Lord, would you take this word and would you instruct us in the way that we should go? Would you transform us into the disciples that we should be? And Lord, would you turn our hearts and our minds towards your Son, the Messiah King, that we might meditate on Him day and night, that we might celebrate Him with our words and with our deeds. 
And that we, we may spend this time as we enter into this Easter season with a whole new and fresh perspective of who this Messiah, your Messiah, your King that you have set upon Zion's hill truly is. May we surrender our lives to Him as a result of what we see and hear. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you notice something very important about this psalm, it's very important actually to the proper interpretation of this psalm. There's actually four different voices present in this psalm. And we're going to look at these four parts this morning. Uh, these four distinct speakers, if you will. First, verses 1 through 3, we see that the nations are speaking. And so it's the voice of the nations. Then in verses 4 through 6, we see the Father is speaking about His King, right? Or His Son, if you will. Verses 7 and 9 refer to the King, right? Or the Son who is now speaking. So it goes from the nations to the Father to the Son or the King who is speaking. And then verses 10 through 12 really goes back to the psalmist or we might even say uh, it's in the voice of the Spirit who is inspiring the psalmist to speak. And so we have the voice of the nations, we have the voice of the Father, we have the voice of the Son or the King, and we have the voice of the psalmist or the Spirit. And these four voices really teach us four very important things about who this Messiah is, who He will be, and who He will continue to be. So in these four parts, we'll see number one, foolish rebellion. We'll see number two, divine derision. Number three, the king's coronation. And number four, we will see wise submission. And so first of all, we begin with verses one through three, where we see this foolish rebellion, speaking specifically of the nations, as we actually hear in these three verses from the nations themselves. Now, the psalm begins with this question, right? Why do the heathens rage? And that term can be used interchangeably with nations. In fact, um, even the King James itself interprets this same Hebrew word, uh, nations, in other places. And so when we're talking about the heathen, when this psalm talks about the heathen, it's really talking about the nations. Now, the reason the translators of the King James uh, might have chosen the word heathen is because it's really talking about anyone who's not the nation of Israel in this context, right? Um, now, in, in our context, we would still say the heathen or the nations, but of course we're talking about anyone who is outside of the covenant church, right? Of the capital C church, outside of a personal relationship with Christ. And so, so the psalmist is asking, why do the nations rage against the Lord, right? Why, why do they uh, congregate in commotion, if you will? Now the answer to this question is really elementary, isn't it? The nations, the heathen rage, because why? Because they are angry, right? They want to throw off the rule of the Lord. Now, this isn't something new to us today. We don't have to really do a deep dive into the historical context of this psalm to understand what it would be like for the nations to rage against the Lord, do we? Right? The nations are raging against the Lord as we speak. Right? And when we talk about nations, we're talking about the people of the world are raging against the Lord today. People still rage against His authority. Right? We may think of some organized religion that rages against Christianity. We may think of some governmental institutions or even some uh, entire uh, governments of nations that rage against the Lord's authority. We see it all over the place. And the fact of the matter is, as we 
read this psalm, we must be reminded of the fact what we experience today in the nations raging against the Lord is not unique to us. It's been happening, right? It's been happening all the way back to when David wrote Psalm 2, but the fact of the matter is it's been happening even before David wrote Psalm 2, right? Ever since Eve had that conversation with the serpent and her and Adam chose to rebel against God's law, the nations have been rebelling, haven't they? And so the rebellion of all peoples is not something that's new to us. Now, rebellion may be happening in, new, in unique ways, right? Uh, I promise you in Psalms 2, the nations weren't using social media to rebel against the Lord. right? They, they weren't using uh, 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 big news media to rebel against the Lord. right? And so the ways rebellion happened may be changing, but the heart of rebellion is still the same. The anger burns the same today as it did thousands of years ago as this very psalm is being penned. And so what we realize is that this really is an old story. People do not want to submit to the rule and reign of God. And this is the result of sin, isn't it? We have an aversion to submitting to the rule and reign of God. Even though we were created in the image of God, sin has so distorted us from birth that it is in our nature to choose to reject the rule and reign of God. And it is only by grace alone that God extends salvation to us, that we might be saved from our rebellion and reunited with Him, isn't it? And so people don't want to submit to the rule and reign of God. People actually hate the rule and reign of God. It's, it's really not just a, I don't want to do that. It's, a, it's this visceral hate for the rule and reign of God. Now, we don't know exactly what time, speaking um, in a historical timeline, this psalm was written. We don't really have a clear date. And so that means we don't really know what current events might have been taking place that really helped inspire the writing of this psalm. But we do know just from reading the Bible and considering the history of the nation of Israel that the surrounding nations, right, the surrounding heathen, as it would say in this text, were raging against the Lord and against His people's king. They wanted nothing to do with His Word, and they wanted nothing to do with His rule. Now, it's interesting as we bring this into our current context, the powers that be, and maybe government or especially in society, tell us that following Christ in His Word will lead us into some sort of bondage, don't they? They, they tell us that if you, if you submit yourself to the Bible, it's, it's actually going to lead you into this type of slavery, into this type of oppression. But this psalm really shows us that the exact opposite is true, that they are wrong. It shows us that submission to Christ actually leads to freedom. It actually leads to fulfillment. And it also shows us the opposite is, is true, that rejecting His rule is actually what leads us into slavery, into bondage, and ultimately into death. As Paul says in Romans 1, their foolish hearts were darkened as they rejected God. Prisoners of the darkness, if you will. So this psalm, this psalm begins with the question, why? Why do the nations rage against the Lord? And then the second part of verse 1, he says, why do they imagine a vain thing? Or maybe better said, why do they plot or plan in vain? Why do they rage against the Lord? And why do they plan or plot against the Lord in vain? 
Now, the Hebrew word used for imagine here, or, or plot as we might translate it, is the exact same word that's used in Psalm 1-2 for meditate. Look at what one two, Psalm 1-2 says. But his delight is in thy law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. It's the exact same word. And so where the blessed person is meditating on God's word day and night in Verse 2 of Psalm 1, those who are rejecting the rule of God and the Word of God in verse 1 of Psalm 2 are meditating, right? They're scheming, they're plotting ways in which they could rebel against the Lord and His people. But the good news of this psalm is we see that ultimately, eternally, those plots do not work. Now he goes on in verse 2 of Psalm 2 to say that the kings of the earth set themselves... Uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, right? Against the anointed one. Now, again, this, this points us towards the greatest anointed one, right? The Lord Jesus. Now, the psalmist is certainly writing in a historical context, but writing with the future in mind. So, historically speaking, Samuel anointed Saul. He anointed David as the anointed one, right? He anointed them as king of the nation of Israel. Now we actually get the word Messiah from transliterating the Hebrew word anointed. So we have this very clear picture here of the psalmist, yes, talking about this historical anointing of kings, but pointing us towards the ultimate, final, eternal Messiah, king of the world. And so to rebel against the anointed one in David's day was to cut yourself off from knowing God and himself. You see, the king was meant to be a representation for God. Right? That, was, that, was, that was what the role of the king of Israel was meant to be, right? that they would be a representation of God. Now, if you read the Old Testament and you study the nations of, nation of Israel's history, they had a lot of kings that didn't do a very good job of this. In fact, even the ones that did do a good job, right? Even King David, who, who was, was this incredible king for many aspects of his kingship and for a large part of his life, fell woefully short of being an adequate representation of God. And so as we see, sadly, that these kings fell short of being this accurate representation, it points us towards Jesus Christ who will come and who will be a perfect and accurate representation of the Father. He is the ultimate Messiah who shows us how to know God. But the nations, they want to do what? They want to throw off this rule. They want to break apart their bonds, right? Notice verse 3, let us break our bands asunder, right? Let us break them apart and, and cast away their cords from us. So he says those wanting, wanting nothing to do with God or His Word, they feel like they're entrapped, right? Those who are rejecting the authority of God feel like they are enslaved, like they are in bonds. Now, that's quite the contrast to those who are happy followers of Jesus, isn't it? Who understand that Jesus' yoke is easy. Right? That the burden is light. It seems to be the opposite of what happens for believers. And so I come back to this idea that the world tells us that uh, being obedient to Christ and His commands leads to bondage. Right? And it's actually the opposite that's being true. And, and we see this playing out all across our culture, right? It's really this, it's this incredible movement of seeking acceptance, 
that's taken place in our culture. And I don't think it's unique just to our culture. I think this has really been happening throughout all of history. But it's happening in uh, unique and maybe even in some ways more perverse ways now than it ever has before. You see, when you talk to, when you talk to young people especially, but this even happens with adults, and you talk about some of the things that they are most concerned with, right? One of those things is acceptance. And what ends up happening when people reject the rule and reign of God, they look for acceptance in something else. They look for acceptance from someone else. And so this begins to happen in really perverse ways. They begin to look for acceptance by engaging in relationships with the same gender. They begin to find their, try to find their place or find acceptance by changing their gender. And really, everyone is just searching for the same thing, acceptance, right? Everyone is just looking for their place in this world. They feel like they're in bondage, right? They need to be set free. They feel weighed down by the burden of not being accepted. But here's the thing. All of those things are just weighing down the darkness. All of those things are just increasing the change because... We know from the very beginning of Scripture that we are created in the Imago Dei, that is, in the image of God. And so the only place that we'll ever find acceptance in this world is by being conformed to the image of God. The only way we're conformed to the image of God is by submitting to His Son, by believing in the Messiah for salvation. But as long as, long as we are rebelling against God's natural law, right? And many of those things I talked about are a rebellion against God's natural law. As long as we're doing those things, as long as we're engaging in those things, as long as we're putting things in our body that, that go against God's natural law, that distort God's image, as long as we're producing things from our bodies that distort God's image, we're not going to feel accepted because we're not accepted. We're being, we were rejected because we are rejecting the only one who can truly satisfy our soul. Now, I'm using really extreme examples, but there's much less extreme examples, right? There are people in the church who don't feel accepted. There are people in the church who are seeking identity. And I promise you, if you feel like that, uh, there, is, there is hope for you because your identity can still be found in Christ. And if you're seeking for identity, uh, if, if you're seeking for acceptance, that, that means there is some part of your life that is in direct rebellion to the Messiah King. And so we should pray that the Lord would help us seek out the areas of our life where we feel like we're in bondage so that it might be conformed into His identity. Listen, if you are in Christ, we don't feel like we're enslaved. We don't feel like we're trapped. We don't do that when we follow Jesus. We actually feel free and we feel alive as we begin to follow Jesus. So it's a really good question for us, isn't it? I mean, do you find following Jesus as something that is free? Do you find it as something joyful or is it a burden? Is it a frustration? Is it like this weighty responsibility? I mean, like how do you think about Sundays, right? Is Sundays a freeing day or is it one of those days where, man, there's so many things I could be doing instead of this, right? You don't really look forward to Sundays. It's just, it's just another day that you have another thing on the schedule. Now, listen, Christian, we're all guilty of feeling this way sometimes, right? Probably especially when you were kids. Maybe I was the only kid that was like this, right? You've heard, the, you've heard the old preacher joke, the drug problem, you got drugged to church. Yeah, that was me, right? 
And so sometimes when you're dealing with the church drug problem, church feels like a burden, right? I could be thinking of a thousand things I would rather be doing than this. Right? It's a beautiful day. I could be outside. I could, I could be spending time with friends, whatever. And it, that, that can continue as we get older, or it can uh, sort of spur back up as we get older. But that's a really poor indicator of our spiritual condition, isn't it? If we're honest, it's a really poor indicator of how we view our relationship with the Messiah King and how we view His eternal reign. But the nations in their own sinfulness want nothing to do with God. And so they continue to rage. And as I've said, we should not be surprised by the reality that the nations, that the people of the world still rage. In the words of 1 John, he says, don't be surprised that the world still hates you. If you're a Christian, don't be caught off guard by the world's rage. Don't be caught off guard by the world's animosity. It's a raging world who wants nothing to do with the authority of God and is shackled in their bondage of rejection. Now, I referenced it earlier, but in Acts chapter 24, verses 23, and really following at the onset of persecution against the early church, this is the text that they look to. This is the text that they, that they take up. They use this text to pray and remind themselves of the fact that God reigns over it all, that He is sovereign over it all. And so they apply these words in Psalm 2. They apply them to Herod. They apply them to Pilate. They apply them to the Gentiles. They even apply them to the people of Israel who are opposed to Christ and His church. And they prayed as they were having these attackers who were mocking and ridiculing them, and it gave the church confidence. It gave them assurance. And that's exactly what Psalm 2 should do for us. As we read this psalm, it should remind us of the sovereignty in which we rest. That we should never be surprised by opposition, but also that we should not be afraid of opposition. So it's incredibly encouraging, isn't it? Even as we deal with the reality of opposition, as you seek to do everything we've been learning about in John and be a faithful disciple of Jesus, you're going to face opposition. But this psalm says don't be discouraged. Because as you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, you rest in the sovereignty of Jesus. And as you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, you have nothing to fear because of who Jesus is. And so why? Why don't we have anything to fear? Notice the second part here in Psalm 2. We see this divine derision if you will. The reason we don't have anything to fear, it's really simply put in verses 4 through 6, is because God just laughs at it all. You see that? The opposition, the stage for opposition is set. The explanation of opposition is set. Not just a few people rebel, not just a few people hate the Lord's rule and reign, but what does he say? All the heathens, all nations rebel against the Lord. And what is God's response? He laughs at it. Verse 4 says, He who sits uh, or, or is enthroned, if you will, in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> what an incredible picture. The nations through all history are rebelling against His Lordship. And God doesn't even stand up. <laughs> he sits and He gives it a big old LOL. Laugh out loud for those of you who don't know modern Greek and Hebrew. He doesn't say, he's just sitting there. 
And he's laughing at their vain plans. He's laughing at their rebellion. He doesn't say, oh no, I may lose or my plan may not prevail. No, he holds them in derision. It says, it says he's amused by them. Now, listen, don't, let's don't make this text say something that it doesn't say. We shouldn't read this and think that God doesn't have love for the world. It's, that's not what this is saying. God does, in fact, have a salvific love for all the world. It's His desire that all people would be saved. And we shouldn't think that this is God being distant or being detached or even being some kind of tyrant. That's not what's happening here. No, this text is just giving us a different focus. It's showing us that God is not panicked by a raging world. That's really what the psalmist is doing. As he's giving us this picture of God sitting and laughing at all of those who devise these vain plans to throw off His rule, he's just showing us that God is not panicked by a world that rages. He's not panicked by the threats of nations. What a comfort that is. Or what a comfort it should be. Right? We may get really nervous about opposition. We may get really concerned about what goes on in the world that seems to be seeking to overthrow the rule and reign of God. But... Christian church, can I, can I assure you this morning, the psalmist reminds us that our God is not panicked by the threats of the nations. He laughs at them. Think about Isaiah 40, 23. It says essentially, He brings princes to nothing and He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Or we might say as emptiness. And so how many people today, let's just think about this very practically, how many people today are just so caught up with political issues Right, As if the whole history of the world is going to rise or fall based on whoever is in a particular political position. But look how God sees these kings in Psalm 2. How He sees the rulers of the world. What does He do? He laughs at them. And the rage of these puny kings is nothing in the eyes of our Lord. Now, this really is shocking language when we think about it. To say that God is laughing. But I think it's obviously very intentional, intentional language, and it's to make a point. And it's a good reminder for us that the biblical writers don't simply express truth to us, but the biblical writers are actually impressing truth on us. We see this happening all the time in Scripture. Yes, they are expressing truth to us, but they are also impressing truth on us. Now, the psalmist could have just said it very plainly. God is sovereign over all these people. That's exactly what he's saying, and he could have just said it plainly, or he could say, God laughs at them. They're both making the exact same point, and that point is that these puny kings, the puny kings of this world, are no threat to God. They're no contest, regardless of whether it is, uh, whether it is the, 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 uh, the president or the chairman of the People's Republic of Korea, regardless of if it's the president of China, regardless of if it's the ruler of Russia, regardless of if it's the president of the United States of America, they are all puny in the eyes of God. God laughs at them. And their vain, uh, their, 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 their vain uh, hopes and plans to ascend to ultimate glory, their vain pursuits of ultimate authority, God is not concerned. You know, I, I thought this week, <laughs> this, this, this really um, sort of comical uh, illustration of, of how, how this psalmist is picturing God 
looking at the nations. Most of you all have probably experienced this if you have kids or grandkids. You know, sometimes Dawson does this. He's ready to wrestle, right? He wants to, he wants to tango. He wants to get into it, right? And so I was going to get him to come up here and do this this morning, but I was afraid he would crumble under pressure. So maybe I'll coach him up next time. But he gets ready to wrestle, right? And he'll come out and he'll be doing like all these extravagant moves and, you know, wielding lightsabers and all this sort of thing, and he's ready to go. You guys have done it before. You can just hold out your hand, right? Put your hand on their forehead. Man, they can swing and they can do whatever, but they can't reach you, right? Well, Dawson takes it a step further a lot of times. He acts sort of in a unique way. When he starts out, I mean, he, he's ready to go, right? He's fired up. And if you hold your hand out and put just a little bit of pressure on his forehead, man, he just crumbles all the way to the ground. He just falls. Gets back up, starts again, right? Hand on the forehead, just falls. And I was thinking about this this week, and this really is the picture that we have of God in this passage, isn't it? The rulers of the nation are ready to take on God. They're ready to overthrow His rule and His reign. And so they come up with extravagant plans. They, they're making all of these grand uh, postures and they're ready to fight. And all God does is stretch out His hand and they crumble to the ground. And He does exactly what I do. Every time Dawson crumbles to the ground, they just, He just laughs at them. It really is what's happening in this psalm. These nations, these kings are raging. They're trying to take a swing at God and He laughs. That's what Psalms 37 verses 12 through 13 also says. The wicked plot, right? They plan against the just or the righteous. They, they gnash upon them with their teeth, right? And it says, the psalmist says, The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Listen, the day of judgment is coming for those who rage and rebel against the Lord. He is not troubled by them. And so church, we should not be troubled by opposition. So verses 1 through 3 tell us not to be surprised by opposition. Right, The nations will rage against those who embrace the gospel. They're going, the nations will rage against the church. But verses 4 through 6 tell us don't be bothered by them. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because Psalm 2 is true. Listen for just a moment how Psalm 59 puts it. David is calling out to God in crisis. And Saul was seeking his life. And David says this, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. All my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. Church, this God who laughs is our strength. He is our fortress in times of opposition. And we may face all varying levels of opposition, right? We may face oppositions to, opposition to our attempts to share the gospel, but we may even face opposition to our own physical health, right? We may face opposition to our mental health. We may face opposition to the health of our relationships on this earth, but the same truth applies to all forms of opposition. This God who laughs is our strength. He is a fortress in our times of opposition. So you think about that. Think about the times that you are facing opposition uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, right? How encouraging is it that God laughs at that opposition? Not because He's taking your opposition lightly, but because He knows He has all authority over the opposition that you face. 
He knows that this opposition cannot stand against Him. And if it cannot stand against Him, it cannot stand against those who are in Him through His Son, Jesus. And so we have this incredible confidence, church. Now verse 5 shifts from the Lord's laughter to the Lord's wrath. We might also read verse 5 this way. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. What he says is that the nations are not getting away with anything. He says wrath and judgment are coming. But here's the thing. We get impatient. We get frustrated, right? We're ready to just just sit and beg and plead with the Lord to come quickly. We wonder why He's waiting. But yet His judgment is delayed. And why is God's judgment delayed against these nations that rage against Him, that form opposition against His church, that that make these vain plans to overthrow Him? Why is it delayed? It is delayed because God is merciful. God is merciful. and He's actually allowing the raging nations and the rebellious people time to repent. What an incredible truth of the gospel. Even those who right now are raging against the church might actually be converted. What if we started looking at our adversaries? What if we started looking at our opposition as targets of gospel conversations? What if we stopped responding to their hate with our own hatred And what if we started responding to them with the same type of mercy with which God is responding to them in this moment? If God tarries, then then that tells us that there is a chance that they might be converted. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. Was there anyone, especially in the New Testament, who had a more obvious opposition to, to, to God's people? That had a more obvious opposition to Christians? Right? Killing them day by day, hundreds by hundreds. Paul is putting Christians to the sword. There's no greater enemy that we could think of, at least physical enemy, to the church in the New Testament than Paul. And what did God do with Paul? Converted Paul. His mercy was expressed towards Paul and Paul was saved. And so then as we think about this psalm, we hear God's majestic voice in verse 6. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He says, let me tell you who the king is. We started with the question, who's in charge? He says, let me tell you who the king is. Now, the I in Hebrew is emphatic here, and it actually should be put at the front of the sentence in order to denote his authority. All of the rage of the nations, right? And, and God speaks from heaven. As for, he, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. It's similar to Psalm 46, 6 says, The heathen again, or the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And with his voice, he tells us he has installed his king. Again, in its historical context, this is speaking of a Davidic king. But again, we know David, though he won many victories, he could not fulfill all that is said in this psalm. And so ultimately this psalm doesn't point us to David. Ultimately this psalm points us to Jesus Christ who has been installed in heavenly Zion. No one will defeat this Christ. And so church, don't let 
the current times deceive you? Because there is one who supremely rules. He rules, he rules not from a governmental house, but He rules from heavenly Zion. And isn't this what our weary souls need? Our weary souls need to be reminded sometimes of who is in charge. Who is in charge? Now I'm not going to have time to, to finish this psalm this morning, so I want us, to, want us to sort of land this plane here. Church, we have a great reason to rejoice in the midst of our weariness. And it's because of the fact that God has set His King in heavenly Zion. Jesus Christ rules over all. Jesus Christ has authority over all things, over all people, over all nations, over all the heathen. And so it is to Him that we turn. It's to Him that the remainder of this psalm turns. We'll we'll look at the remainder of it next week. But as we consider the foolish rebellion of this world, as we consider all of the various oppositions that we may face, would you be reminded this morning, Christian, that King Jesus reigns. He rules. Psalm 2 is pointing us towards the glory and the greatness of the prophesied Messiah King. And so as we celebrate Easter over the next couple of months, we are celebrating the rule and the reign of this King. And we are reminded, regardless of what this government or that government may do, we are are reminded that regardless of who may or may not claim authority, that there is only one with ultimate authority. And we're also reminded of the mercy of this King. And so long as we await the second advent, of which the second part of this psalm points, we are reminded of our responsibility not to respond to the world's rage with rage, not to respond to the world's hate with hate, but to respond to the world the same way this King responds to the world. Not fearful, not fearful of their attacks not fearful of their animosity towards us, but with compassion and mercy towards them, continuing to faithfully express the gospel of this Messiah who is seated on the throne of Zion's hill. I invite you to stand with me as Rebecca comes as we pray together. Lord, we are indeed thankful for Your Word this morning. We're thankful for this psalm, Lord, and and it's such an incredible thing, God, for us to be able to look at Your Word. Whether we open up one of the books of the law, whether we open up a prophet, or whether we open up some of the poetry, one of the psalms, the Gospels, the letters to the churches, the Revelation, every corner of Scripture points to Your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank You for reminding us this morning as we live in this broken, this distorted world full of nations and people who rebel against Your authority. Lord, we thank You this morning for bringing us the comfort, for reminding us that we rest in Your sovereignty, for reminding us that You are not overwhelmed, You are not fearful of the world's opposition, but You sit and You laugh at it because you know that you have established your king and so Lord as we think about that this morning would you help us to search our own hearts and will we be able to answer the question have we submitted to your king
Or do we still look for acceptance in this world? Are we still looking for some place to belong? And Lord, may You show us all of the places that we seek to belong. All of the things that we do in order to be accepted are just vain schemes that fail in comparison to finding our identity in Your Son, Jesus. And so Lord, if there be even one part of our lives that has not come into full submission of You, would You, would you make that known to us this morning? Would we surrender our lives, Lord, all of our lives to the King whom You have established? understanding that we will not find freedom and liberty so long as we pursue the vain plans of this rebellious world, but we will find true freedom, true joy, and true liberty when we submit ourselves to the rule and the reign of the Messiah King of Jesus Christ. And so may this time of invitation, may it be a time of surrender, may it be a time of dedication, may it be a time of salvation, May it be a time where we rest in the reign of our Messiah. We ask all of this in His precious and holy name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person. When you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule, there's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.